Romans 6, beginning with verse 11. So also you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not, there, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for righteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruits were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And together we say, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. We have another question here in uh, verse 15 as we had, as we began in chapter one. And these two questions are similar, uh, different context a bit, but similar. And, and what they deal with is, is what now really is our relationship to sin? Now that Christ has come and now that we've been justified by faith, uh, what is the relationship that we have uh, to sin. Um, the first question said, since uh, grace abounds when sin abounds, then we should sin. So grace will abound. Paul said that's ridiculous. Uh, this question is, um, now that we're not under law but under grace, then we can sin because we're not under law. It's sort of like if they take the speed limit signs down, we don't have to watch how fast we go anymore. Uh, or if it's grace, we're under grace, and if we break the law, then it's no big deal uh, because uh, we're under grace. Paul says, likewise, that's preposterous, that's ridiculous. We should never think that way um, at, at all. And, and, and the reason is summarized in, in John's first epistle in chapter three and, and verse five. John writes there, he says, you know that he, the he there is Jesus, you know that Jesus appeared in order to take away sins. See, that's the point of it. Jesus came to deal with sin in its entirety in the course of our lives. It's sin that brings misery in our lives. Thus, the mercy of God comes to deal with sin, again, in its fullness, in its, in its completeness. Um, we're justified by faith. That means that sin has been dealt with in the sense that we're forgiven, and now because of Jesus, because of his death, we're forgiven our sins and declared 
righteous, no longer condemned by sin, no longer under its penalty. But also we know that sin's power is broken by the cross as well. It no longer reigns in our lives. And, and so now we live in this time of what we call sanctification, this hopefully progress that we're making in holiness. And God gives us his spirit and his word to enable us to, to, to grow in this holiness in sanctification. And then a day will come when Christ returns that there will be no presence of sin at all. And so we can look at our salvation as we often have said in past, present, and future past, sins dealt with on the cross, thus we're justified. Uh, present, God dealing with our sin, in, the sin in us, uh, to eradicate it as much as possible in our lives as we grow in sanctification. And then finally, to, to take it away in its entirety. So we have justification, sanctification, and ultimately glory of glorification. So you, this justification is what's done for us. Um, this sanctification, what's done in us. And this glorification, what's done to us. All right? Good, that's just a little theological summary uh, of all of this. But you remember from last time that Paul develops his case by saying, we've been joined together with Christ. When we are in faith in Christ, it means we're united to him. And so that everything that Christ did, he did then for us. And, and we did it in some real sense because he's our covenantal head. Uh, we did it in him. So that when he died, we died. So when he rose to newness of life, we rose to newness of life. And so Paul says, well then how can you continue to live in sin? How can sin define your life now? It can't, it can no longer define your life. Why, because you're dead to sin. What does that mean? It means we've, we've died to its penalty. It means it has, death has no longer or sin has no longer a legal claim on us. We've died to it. It's been, its penalty's been paid. And now we live, you see, we live to God. Sin no longer rules in our lives, but we live to God. Now, as we mentioned last week, that doesn't mean that we're sinless. It means that sin no longer defines our life. It means that we now deal with this sin in our life. When it comes up, we confess it. We repent of it, we name it, we ask God to help us to move from it. You see, that's our heart's desire, not to sin. As Paul put it in Philippians in chapter three, in verse, in verse 12, we have this. He says, not that I've already obtained this, or I'm, ready, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. In other words, because we belong to him. You see, we've been bought with a price, as he says. And with us, we've been freed from the penalty and power of sin, and now we belong to him. And now, so Paul says, here's my life now. I press on, that's our lives now. We, we press on, and Paul will go on in chapter seven and talk about this, this, this sin that still resides in us that he still must deal with. And in Galatians 5, this war between the flesh and the spirit. But there's great hope for us. 
There's great hope because Christ has come. There's great hope for us because when he died, we died to the power of sin and its penalty. And now we live in this new life that he gives to us. Now we begin this process of sanctification in our minds, that is, by telling ourselves the truth, by knowing the truth. Paul's big emphasis in Romans and especially in this chapter six is on what we know. Verse three says, do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And then verse six, we know that our old self was crucified. We know, again, the emphasis, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. This is why Christ died, so we'd no longer be enslaved to sin, its penalty and power. And then in verse nine, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. We know this. And therefore, because of what we know, you see, now we're to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. We're to think about ourselves in a particular way. And this isn't, this isn't make-believe. This isn't pretend. Or oh, oh, pretend that you're dead to sin and alive to God. It isn't, it isn't that. Nor is it make it happen by your faith, like the power of positive thinking or some such thing. It isn't that either. It's, this is true. This is who you are. Now you need to remind yourself of that all the time. This is your identity. This is who you now are. Paul will make this case again in chapter 12. I won't be able to get there before I retire. You have to pick this up on your own. You have to pick a lot of it up on your own, as a matter of fact. But chapter 12, you know this passage. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present yourselves, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so Paul's saying, here is the first part of renewing your mind. You need to begin to think differently, understand yourself differently, now that you're in Christ. And you need to, 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 to renew your mind as it regards sin. Sin is no longer your friend. When you were lost, sin was your friend, sin was your life rebelling against God, going your own way, but, but that isn't true anymore. You now see it. Sin is the enemy. Sin is the cause of all of our misery. And so Jesus came to deal with that. He says, I want you to see that. I want you to know that. Consider that. Make sure you, you're aware of that all the time. And to know now that you're dead to sin, but alive to God. This is how you're, you're to live, dead to sin. But now you see alive to God. There's a story told about St. Augustine. Before St. Augustine became a, a believer, he had a mistress. If you read Confessions of Augustine, and you will find that she's never named, but she's there. The story is told that after he became a Christian, she saw him one day walking on the street, and she began to call to him, Aurelio, Aurelio. Um, and he just kept walking. He 
didn't even acknowledge her. So she came up to him and she said, she said, Aurelio, it is I. What's the matter? And he said, well, that's the matter. It is no longer I. He knew he wasn't the man who had a mistress. He was a man who belonged to Christ. That was our passage this morning in Galatians and chapter 2 for our assurance of pardon. This fact, this truth we must have in our minds. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. Now who's the I there? According to Romans 6, the I there is the old self, the old man, the man in Adam. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. Who's the I there? The I there is the old self, the self in Adam. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Who's the me there? The me there is the me in Christ, the one who lives in newness of life. And the life I, now this I, is the life, the new self, this, this life in Christ, the life I live. Uh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. The old me, even, and gave himself for the old me that I might live. Do you see it? the sense of it you see it's this new identity and Paul's saying don't go back don't go back offer yourselves this new life after the members of your of your being of your body to righteousness our identities change from time to time even in this life you go from being a child to being a parent and it's always dangerous if the parent reverts back to being the child In a wedding ceremony, it's a ceremony really of of an identity change from singleness to marriage. And always, almost always, with the giving of the ring, I I pray for the wearer of the ring to realize that it's no longer me, but we. Because you see, something changes at that moment. I always love to say this, and you've gone to the 200 weddings I've done. You'll know that I always say this. I always say that when you walked into this, sacri- this ceremony, this, this sanctuary, you weren't husband and wife, but when you leave, you will be. It's a complete, that's a change of identity. So much so that one of the symbolisms of, of a wedding is that we start out here in the giving the bride, but then the couple moves up here. And that's to, to symbolize, to visualize something's changing now about them. There's a, a kind of a separation. Oh, they're not leaving their families and all that completely, but, but we, we know what the relationship there is. But, but, but there's a separation. And so now there's this new identity that, that he belongs to her and she belongs to him. It's no longer me, but it's now we. So, so much so that, 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 that you shouldn't ever revert, revert, revert back. Uh, not, well, some time ago now, my youngest, 
when she was first married, was driving to Lawrence one rainy day. And she called me and she said, Dad, my windshield wipers aren't working. What should I do? And I said, what does your husband say? Because I told my sons-in-law, when I give her to you, she's yours. <laughs> right? And so for a second, uh, you know, this is the natural thing to do, obviously. But, but, but kind of reverting back. She was my daughter. But no, she was his wife. And so a few minutes later, I get a call from her husband. Where's a good place for her to stop in Lawrence? I told him. He called her. That's the sense of it. So when you're married, it's not impossible for you to go back and act like you're single or think like you're single. In fact, much of marriage counseling that we've done over the years is reconvincing people that they're married and not single and all that that means. But it's not impossible, but it's morally incomprehensible. And that's the sense here. Once you're in Christ, don't live like you're not. Don't go back. Why would you? William Tyndale summarizes this passage by saying, remember that Christ made not this atonement that you should anger God again, neither died he for your sins that you should live still in them, neither did he cleanse you that you should return as a swine to your own puddle again, but that you should be a new creature live a new life after the will of God and not of the flesh. So Paul ends this by saying, for sin will have no dominion over you. Why? Because you've been joined with Christ. We need to know this. We need to put this in our minds every day, that, 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 that sin no longer reigns over us. It's no longer our master, since you're not under law. And, and by that he meant, you're no longer under the condemnation of the law. It no longer has any legal claim over you. You're free of it but you're under grace. What does that mean? You've been justified by faith. Then the question, well, well, doesn't that mean then we can sin because we're not under law, we're under grace. Uh, we're not beholden to the law. We're under grace, so we'll always be forgiven. And, 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 and this is a reasonable question in the sense that when we hear about the grace of God, it's so other to, to think that God says, no, 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 I accept you. Not on the basis of anything you do. Not on the basis of anything you've done. I've forgiven all your sins, past, present, and future. I'm receiving you. I'm welcoming you into the kingdom. Trust me. And you go, well, if I'm in, and I'm in, and I can't get out, then I can do whatever I want. And plus, no, you, you don't understand what it means to be in. You, you don't understand well, what it means that you believe that you've been converted, that you have repented of your sins and come now in faith to God and says, and so then he begins to give a, an illustration. With union with Christ, he used baptism. And now with our conversion, he's using slavery. Now in verse 19, you may have caught this as I was reading, but in verse 19 he says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. And what he means is slavery is an okay illustration of some things about our life uh, in Christ, but, but not everything. You know, uh, 
Slavery is a great illustration of what Paul's doing here, obviously, and it's great because it says, listen, when you give yourself to another and you give yourself to God, you believe, then you are to be wholly devoted to him as a slave is wholly devoted to his master. But on the other hand, slavery isn't all that great in illustration because it doesn't mean that, 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 that our master is cruel or it doesn't mean this is going to be a horrible life. Now, when you think about slavery, you think about a horrible life. You think about, uh, about being constrained and, 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 and no, this is where slavery loses its help for us because it's not a life of constraint. It's a life of freedom to really live. It's not a life of repression. As Paul, or as John says in 1 John chapter 5, the commands of God aren't burdensome. It's, it's, not, it's not a burden. It's not a chore. And Jesus said, come to me, all you are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, this yoke of slavery to me. Take my yoke upon you. And learn of me, for I'm gentle and humble of heart. And you'll find rest for your souls. May that. So that doesn't quite fit the master in a slave context. So Paul's saying, I'm going to share with you something here. It doesn't say everything about about this, but but I've got to press home this point to you because if I don't, I'm afraid you'll miss it. And so he lays it out in verse 16. He says, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, your slaves are the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience that leads to righteousness. So Paul gets right down to the nitty-gritty of life, and he says, listen, no one is autonomous. You're either a slave to sin, or you're a slave to God. There's no in-between. Notice here, he puts it as either a slave of sin or a slave of obedience. Um, Then in verse uh, 17, he says, you're once slaves of sin. And then in verse 18, he says, now you're slaves of righteousness. But then in verse 20, he says, you're slaves of sin. But now you're slaves of, you've become slaves of God. No one is uh, autonomous. We're slaves to to what we give ourselves to, what our preferences are, what we prefer, you see. Slaves of that. Um, Sin gives us a particular taste for things which are not of God, and we're enslaved to those tastes, those sins. Um, Becky um, Pippert, a little book called Out of the Salt Shaker, which you have to be my age to appreciate. It was popular when I was a kid in the Lord, but uh, um, she writes this. Whoever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by acceptance. We don't control ourselves. We're controlled by the Lord of our lives. And in Adam, we were controlled by sin and Christ's righteousness. Somehow, Bob Dylan got it right in a song that I'm ashamed to admit I remember. It's this little tune called Gotta Serve Somebody. 
And uh, he writes uh, and sings, kind of sings. Whatever that is, he does. So, but you gotta have to, you're gonna have to serve somebody. Indeed, you're gonna have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. I, I doubt that he was inspired by Romans 6, but he had a sense of what was really here. Jesus said, if you sin, you're a slave to sin. So sin has enslaved us, and so we're either enslaved to sin or we're enslaved to the Lord. There's no neutrality, there's no spiritual Switzerland, right? It's either one or the other. And then Paul lays out again this, this, this message of, of grace. But thanks be to God, he says, that you were once slaves, that, that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient to the heart, to the standard of teaching to which you are committed. Let me, let me just pause. There's an interesting expression, a, a very awkward one in, in a sense if you read it slowly. So we become obedient from the heart. Now we get that, we become obedient from the heart. We know that there needs to be a change of heart for us to be turned to God. Jeremiah speaks of it when he talks about the new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31, that God will write his laws on our hearts and put them in our minds. Um, Ezekiel talks about when he says he'll take out, God will take out of the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh, you know, put his spirit within us to enable us to walk in his ways. That's Ezekiel 36. Jesus talks about it in John chapter three. We need to be born again to really see, perceive, understand, enter the kingdom of God. So we know that must happen. He says, so you were once slaves to sin. You've become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. See, there's this standard of teaching. There's this gospel didn't originate with Paul, the standard of teaching that was accepted in the early church, this gospel, you see. And he says, now, this wasn't committed to you, we're entrusted to you, but you were entrusted, you were committed to it. Um, you were handed over to it, is another translation. So this message becomes the caretaker of our hearts. So he tells us, he says, once you were slaves, now you've become obedient from the heart. That's the obedience of faith. Faith calls us to believe, and we believe, and to follow, and we follow. And you've been set free from sin to become slaves of righteousness. And now you see, we present our bodies, our members, our lives, as, not as slaves, to impurity and to lawlessness, but to be slaves of righteousness leading to sanctification. Notice in verse 19, the middle of it, there's a great warning here. It says that if you present the members of your, your members, your life, as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, it leads to more lawlessness. That there's a progression. Kids, capture this now so that when you're older you're not still fighting the same besetting sins that you're fighting now understand who you are in the Lord begin to walk with him to trust him in obedience to obey him to follow his ways because if, if you don't you see then as you get older and older and older what happens is that these besetting sins beset themselves even more and more in our hearts 
and they're not easier to deal with when you're older, but harder to deal with when you're older because they become so much a part of you. So he says, if you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, stop doing that, because if not, it just creates more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Sanctification is this process, this progress really in the other direction that is in this progress of, of holiness. And so now you see this is what we're to do. We're to present ourselves, members of our bodies, as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. We're to present our minds always as instruments of sanctification, to be growing in holiness, to be, to be growing in the wisdom of God, which we can only do by pouring ourselves into the scripture. As we prayed in the prayer of illumination, his word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It's the way that we know how we're to live. Without it, we don't know where to go. The psalmist says, in your light, I see light. In other words, in your scripture, in your word, which lightens my path, I see everything now. I see things clearly. Now, the Bible doesn't give us direction on every little incident in our life, but the more we read it, the more we understand it, the more we grow in it, we we grow in wisdom, you see. And we begin to think God's thoughts after him. And so we grow in wisdom, so that as he writes in, in, in Romans 12, He says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and and perfect, you see. That's how we do it, by learning his word, by struggling with it, by praying through it and thinking through it. And then we offer our mouths what we say to him, you see. What's coming out of our mouths? James talks about this a great deal, as you might remember in his little epistle. But, 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 our, but our mouths, what comes out is, is powerful and it reveals really what's in the heart. That's what Jesus said. It's not what goes into us that defiles us. It's what comes out of us that defiles us through our mouths and through our lives. So are we speaking truth or are we being arrogant? Are we being kind or are we gossiping? Are we, are we slandering? Are we being edifying and gracious? What comes out of our mouths? Our hands and feet how we live should reflect this obedience of faith. We should give our lives to righteousness, really to love. Paul comes to this application at the very end in chapters 12 through 14, read through it. And essentially he says that, that given all this, given what Christ has done and who we are in him as now slaves to him, here's how we're to live, we're to love each other, to really love each other. Paul Tripp wrote a book on marriage called What Did You Expect? I'm starting to reread marriage books again. Um, I always tell couples once they get married to talk about marriage as much as they can because they know more about it in their first year than they will in their 48th. But Karen and I have been called to do a marriage retreat at our daughter's church in Pennsylvania but not for a year and a half, so I have some time to get better at it. But he defines love like this. He says, love is willing, sacrifice, willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not require reciprocation 
or that person being loved is deserving. Love is willing self-sacrifice. It's willing. Jesus gave his life. It's willing. It's self-sacrifice. No such thing as love without sacrifice, Tripp says. Love calls you beyond the borders of your own wants and needs and feelings. It calls you to be willing to invest time, energy, money, resources, personal ability, and gifts for the good of the other. Love calls you to lay down your life in ways that are concrete and specific. Love calls you to serve, to wait, to give, to suffer, to forgive, and do all these things again and again and again and again. Love's willing to sacrifice for the good of another. Love is willing to sacrifice for the good of another that does not require payback. Doesn't require that the person is deserving. That's giving ourselves to righteousness. To really love it. And the fruit of it. The fruit of it, Paul says in verse 21. Verse 20. But when you were slaves of sin, you were free. Uh, in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you're now ashamed? Paul really goes with a jugular here. He says, think about your life before you came to faith in Christ. Think about where your sin got you. Got you condemned on the one hand, and even on the other. Look at the misery that sin caused in your life. Your arrogance. Think about the misery that that caused in your life, Right? Your anger, think about where that got you in your life. Your self-centeredness, where did that get you in your life? How did that affect your relationships with others? How did that affect the quality of your life, really? The breaking of all these commandments, God says that we're to have no other gods before him, we're not to have any images of him that are false. We're to worship him and worship him alone. How did idolatry do for you? Did the idols ever, 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 ever really serve you? No, you always served them. When you took the name of the Lord in vain, you realize what you're doing there. You're, you're acting as if you're God. You're using the name of God in ways that God would never use his name, but you're using it, acting as if you're God, like, like you can speak on behalf of God these things which are coming out of you but not coming out of him. And, and you never served the Sabbath, which is devastating to us. Because the Sabbath gives us rest. Because on Sabbath, as we're here, we're thinking about God and not ourselves. We're thinking about who he is as he's the sovereign one. We're not. And that, that's rest to our souls to come and recalibrate everything every seventh day and one day in seven so that, that we can say, yes, of course, he's the sovereign one. It's all because of him. He's the giver. I'm the receiver. That's wonderful. You see. And if we fail to honor our father and mother, we lose the love of family. And if we commit adultery, we're unfaithful people whom we live in the devastation of that unfaithfulness. And if we murder, or we may not kill anybody, but, but what does our anger do and our malicious thoughts to others? How does that affect our relationships with others? It just leads to slander and bitterness and gossip. When we lie, we're untruthful. We live in the fear we'll be found out. We, we steal, we're never content with what we have. We miss out on the joy of work and its benefits and its delight. And when we covet, we're thankless. 
We're never satisfied with what we have. So Paul says, think about what sin does in your life. Why would you ever go back there? But he says, now you've been set free. You've become slaves to God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification. That's the fruit you see. When you give yourself to God, the fruit of it is holiness. And in the end of it is eternal life. And he says, because when sin's your employer, all you get is death, separation from God, and all the goodness that is in him. But the free gift is not a wage. It's not a, something you've earned. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let me end with this. In verse 17, Paul says, but thanks be to God. He says, that, that's, that's the new motive, gratefulness. He says, thanks be to God. Look what God has done. We didn't do this. Look what God has done. Thanks be to God. That's the new motive. That's our new ethic, is, is to, be, to live a life of gratefulness, of thankfulness to God. Now, thankfulness doesn't go like this. Sometimes we think thankfulness means if I'm really thankful, what I'll do is I'll try to pay you back. No, 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 no. That's the most disrespectful thing you can do to somebody who gives you a gift is to try to pay them back. Especially if it's a gift that you really have always wanted, it's a gift that you really need but you could never acquire for yourself or never would. How do we show thanks? How do we show gratitude for a gift like that? One that it's really impossible to pay back. One where a thank you note just simply doesn't cut it. The way that we say thanks for a gift like that is that we use the gift. For instance, let's say you always wanted a particular watch, an Apple watch, right? You've always wanted one, but, but you can't afford it. You'd never buy it for yourself. You can't afford it. And somebody gives it to you as a, as a gift. It shows up under the tree or under the birthday cake or, or maybe just on your front door. By the way, don't give me an Apple watch. That's, I'm not bargaining for that. Karen's going to buy me one, though, for my retirement because she bought me this watch 36 years ago. And it still works. Although I'm afraid on the 31st it's going to stop. But anyway, <laughs> does I'll let you know that I really know I picked the right date. But anyway, let, let's say somebody gives this gift to you. How do you show thanks? Well, of course, you write them a thank you note, you tell them thank you, and all that. But the way that you show that you're really grateful is that you wear it. If this person sees you and you're not wearing the watch, they'll wonder, did they really want it? Are they really grateful? Are they really happy I gave it to them? And so when we receive this gift of justification and sanctification, what do we do? Well, we use it. We confess our sins and receive forgiveness. And then we offer ourselves to righteousness, to live it out. That's how we show we're grateful. That's how we show God. That's how we show ourselves this is really what I've always wanted. This is really what I've always needed. I've always wanted to be. I've always needed to be free from this sin that's kept me in bondage, that would kill me, that would send me to hell. But now I've received this gift. How do we show our gratefulness? How we come on Sundays when we worship? We say thanks. And then we live it out.
Let's pray. Father, I pray for each of us and all of us that as individuals we would live this out and offer ourselves as slaves to righteousness because we've been bought with a price. That price has been one to free us from our sin and enslave us to Christ. We know that he's a good Lord. And so we believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord. We trust. So help us in every engagement of life, things we look at that we would Give our eyes as instruments of righteousness. Our mouths as instruments of righteousness. Our hands and feet as instruments of righteousness. Our whole lives, God. And that we would reap this great fruit of righteousness. That we may have love and joy and peace. Patience, kindness, goodness. Faithfulness and self-control. We may live in love. This I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.